0: Ricochet's self-titled debut album, Ricochet, was released in 1996 and the song, What Do I Know, served as its lead-off single and was a top ten hit on the Billboard Country Music Charts. that That song was followed by Ricochet's biggest hit and their only number one song, Daddy's Money. Off the same album, another top 10 hit, Love is Stronger Than Pride. Ricochet went on to have two more top 20 songs, with Ease My Troubled Mind and He Left a Lot to Be Desired. This is Hello from the 90s. Hello from the 90s, it's
1: Heath Wright from Ricochet.
0: Heath Wright from the band Ricochet, big huge stars in the '90s, number one hits. Um, of course, everybody remembers "Daddy's Money," right? I mean, I, I, <laughs> we, we, when you play now, is that the song that you wait till the very end to play to this day, uh, or no? Oh
1: yeah, you know, you know, I, you know how it is when you go to a concert. You you want to hear your favorite songs, and then you you want to leave before all the all the good restaurants. It closed, and and before the traffic gets bad and all of that, you know. So, yeah, we got to save that one to the end.
0: Now, Ricochet um, uh, formed in the early 90s. So, We didn't really, uh, as far as radio airplay, we didn't hear about you much until uh, mid-90s. How did Ricochet get started?
1: Well, you know, we started in a little town in Missouri, a little college town, Columbia, Missouri. Our our first manager owned a nightclub called the Silver Bullets okay in fact that's kind of how we got our name his wife thought it would look cool on the marquee up front if the silver bullet presents ricochet oh we couldn't call ourselves a silver bullet band bob seeger was already using that <laughs> so ricochet was just uh, kind of a fitting name since we were playing at the silver bullet at least once a month for a five-day stretch every month and and then we'd go out on the road and play other places and it just uh it just kind of got started on a grassroots kind of a kind of a thing you know we uh when I'm when I when i 1st moved to Nashville, I joined up with the two brothers in Ricochet, Jeff and Junior Bryant. Mm-hmm. They had a band called Lariat, and then Lariat went through some changes. and We found out that the prior manager owned rights to that name, so we kind of had to start all over, just the three of us, with a new name. and That's like I said, that's when we decided to start calling ourselves Ricochet. And we found uh, our keyboard player through a musician's referral service. That was uh, Eddie Kilgallen was the original keyboard player, and then. After him, oh, I'm sorry. No, it was Teddy killed. Teddy a uh, car that we found through the musicians referral service. Eddie put an ad in the paper, a little, uh, a little, kind of a grassroots newspaper in Nashville called the Nashville Scene, and we oh, answered yeah. that ad. Yeah, I remember then, course,
0: that. We, mm-hmm. I remember, remember the, the scene? That, that. Yeah, I remember the scene. Yeah, I'd always go to the back page. Yes. See what all the crazy people were doing.
1: That's that's right. There was a, there was a lot of crazy people that we put ads, and I don't know. I just happened to be there. There was one laying around the apartment that day, and I. Kind of went to the musicians seeking bands or band seeking musicians part of the of the uh, of the of the paper and I just mm. found Eddie Kaye's name, and he sounded I called him up and chatted with him for a minute and he sounded normal I, you know I didn't find out later that he was just as crazy as the rest of it uh, <laughs> and then of course the last member of the band that we that we added was the, my good friend from Oklahoma Greg Cook and so that's sort of how in a nutshell that's how Ricochet got started now here we are gosh. Twenty-seven, twenty-eight years later. Wow! And uh, still doing it. Different, different personnel, different lineup. I'm the only original member left. But uh, you know, we still have just as much fun when we step out on stage and play those hits that you heard earlier uh, to audiences, and they still remember them. You know, it's fun to look out there and see college kids singing along, and then they'll come through the autograph line later and they'll say, "You know, I was in kindergarten when that song came out." <laughs>
0: they don't make you that that that, kind of makes you feel old but in a way but in a good way because yeah you
1: know it 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 makes me old it doesn't make me just feel old it makes me (laughs) old but it's okay you know we all if we live long enough we're all going to get old and it's just fun to still be able to do this at my age i'm i'm 50 now i'm 50 years old and i started this band when i was 28
0: and still going
1: still going still doing it yes still out there on the on the, uh, on the road, you know, we don't do it as hard as we used to. Back in 1996, we were on the road 268 days.
0: Well, you had to. I mean, that was your very yeah. first album that's come out. and You're getting uh, played on the radio, What Do I Know, uh, it was the first single in a top-ten hit. That didn't really that's happen right. for everybody that puts – or hardly, it didn't happen for hardly anybody that puts out a single off their first album that it goes to a, a, a top-ten hit. Was that just well, surreal for
1: all of you? You know, it was very surreal. It was We spent almost six months on the road just setting up that single, you know, visiting radio stations, what they call the radio tour. I don't even know if they still do those things or not. But, uh, I don't know either. We would go out on the road and just kind of, you know, meet program directors and music directors. At, and we'd do two or three, sometimes four radio stations a day. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we'd take them out to dinner uh, at the end of the night and just kind of chat with them about the single and about how we got started and give them a little bit of a background on us. Usually during the lunchtime hour, we would... Uh, Give a, a a short little private acoustic concert to mm-hmm. in, a, in the in uh, the conference room to the staff of the radio station, and uh, you know more often than not the DJs that would have us on air so we could introduce ourselves to, to the listening audience. And it was a, you know it was a setup process. It was like you know starting a new business basically, and you had to had to kind of meet your audience, meet meet the people you were you know sitting singing to right exactly so we were fortunate enough to be able to do that but it was so strange i remember the first time i heard what do i know on the radio uh that year 1995 I, I uh had let's see the the night before thanksgiving it was a wednesday night i was in the recording studio doing some demos because i also had a publishing deal at the time and that night i finished up pretty late about 10 o'clock and by the time i uh got all my gear loaded up, and, and I got on the road. I knew I was going to go home for Thanksgiving, and I decided I was just going to drive home that night. I was kind of tired. I'd been in the studio all day, but about just on the outskirts of Nashville, I heard a Trisha Yearwood song that had been released on the same day as, what do I know? It was a song called Bus to St. Cloud. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing that on the radio, and I'm thinking to myself, well, that guy, I'm her, they're playing her song. How cool would it be? I, I, why, why can't they be playing our song? I've never heard it on the radio. You know, just yet. I mean, we heard it, you know, during interviews and stuff that we had done at radio, stations. but not in your
0: just, car driving yeah, like normal train. people exactly. hear it. Yeah, that
1: was the first time. The very next next song was "What Do I Know?" And when I heard that little drum intro, doom 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 doom, yeah, you know, I, I knew that that was it. That was a song. So I, 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 I'm going to tell you, man. I, I rolled the windows down. <laughs> I rolled the windows down and started yelling at the truckers. I, I did. That's me on the radio. <laughs>
0: Now, when I, uh, when you put out "What Do I Know," and you knew you had Daddy's money in your back pocket, mm-hmm. did you? Was there ever a thought, man, we should have put out Daddy's money first, or is that kind well, of hindsight?
1: You know what's funny is we actually wanted to release Daddy's money first, but we knew if we didn't release "What Do I Know" first, that Linda Davis would release her version. Of
0: it. Ah. she had
1: also recorded a, a "What Do I Know" during the same time, mm-hmm. and so if we knew if we didn't get it out there, that. He would certainly get it, because we knew it was a hit as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, hindsight, 2020, we would have, what do I know didn't very well for us. It didn't go number one. It went to uh, top five. I think it was five on Billboard and three on Mm -hmm. R&R, radio and records, both publications. And we, You know, we uh, were lucky enough to have a top five hit for our debut single, and it was the highest debut single of the year.
0: Really? I didn't know that.
1: It, it was, actually. Yeah, the highest debut single of of, of 1995. So we were uh, lucky in that regard. And, of course, the second single was Daddy's Money, and it was number one for two weeks straight. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it all worked out.
0: But didn't that whole album, it was on the charts for a whole year, wasn't it? I mean, it was...
1: It... I believe so. I think you're right. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a time during the Daddy's Money uh, single release that we actually uh, had two current singles on the chart at the same time. We had released... Uh, just as a promotion, we had recorded our version of the National Anthem and sent it out to radio. Mm-hmm. And I guess the week that we were going for number one on, for Daddy's Money happened to be the weekend of July 4th. And since our version of the National Anthem got played, and then they would back it with uh, Daddy's Money, you know, they'd play the two back-to-back. Mm-hmm. Daddy's Money, uh, I, I don't really recall if it was the week honestly, that it went number one, or the week that it stayed number one for, for a second week. But it was one of those weeks that, that Daddy's Money was number one, that we also had the hotshot debut with our version of the National Anthem.
0: Well, and and that's something, too, that probably nobody knows. I mean, if you're planning on being on Jeopardy! later, and, and this comes up, Ricochet's the only band to ever chart with the Star-Spangled Banner.
1: Well, we're the only country band. We're the only oh. country artists to have ever charted. And I know Whitney Houston had a version of it that's uh, true. That charted on Billboard back during the first Gulf War, mm-hmm. and uh, there was an op- operatic singer. Uh, his name escapes me right now, but he had a a charting version of it on Billboard in the sixties.
0: Wow, I didn't. Uh, so, so I was kind of right, at least.
1: Yeah, you were close, close <laughs> enough, close enough.
0: Uh, Nineteen ninety seven comes around. It's time for a second album, "Blink of an Eye" and "Water Ride," and he left a lot to be desired. Was the first single off that. Um, how did you come up with that song being the first one off the second album?
1: Well, you know, I'd like to take credit for choosing all those great hits that, you know, and, and we did, you know, we did sit in the room and uh, as a, as a group when it came time to choose songs that we were going to go in and record, but you know, it, it was a, anytime you're in a band, everything is a vote, mm-hmm. everything from where you're going to stop for lunch, <laughs> to what's the next single that you're going to release? you know, everything is a vote. So yeah. I, I, I got to share that credit with the guys in the band. We all uh, knew that the songs we recorded for the most part were the right songs for that project. That project didn't have the same commercial success as the debut album, uh, the self-titled ricochet album, mm-hmm. but it has some great music on it. What do I know was one of those great songs. Excuse me. I, uh, he left a lot to be desired was one of those great songs. And I, I just realized that that song spoke to a lot of people, uh, a lot of women, you know, that uh, mm. had been left out in the cold in a relationship, and 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 felt like uh, felt like the man had made a mistake. I, I I think it's always a good idea when you when you're singing to women if you're singing about how terrible men are. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good formula, and, and, and yeah, and because they're not going to disagree.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, he's right. That Heath is right singing up there. So men are right. pigs. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: men are bottom feeders. But yeah, that's that, that just that's pretty much been our our uh, secret to our success for our entire career.
0: So um, after all, all this, uh, Ricochet is is still going. We we you know we've talked about that. There's been some movement in in who who's in the lineup, but as a band and, and there's normal band things. And you see all kinds of stuff about if you watch BH One Behind the Music or anything like that. Are you guys the original members of Ricochet? Do you still talk? Are you still friends? You get along.
1: Well, yeah, you know, for the most part, uh, of course, we all live in different places. As I mentioned earlier, I moved back to Oklahoma in 2008. I grew up on a little cattle ranch here in Oklahoma, and I got to missing home. And, you know, some personal reasons. My dad had already passed, and my mom was in bad health. And, excuse me, I was just, it was time for me to come home and help run the ranch. Mm -hmm. And uh, I commuted back and forth to Nashville whenever we would go out on tour and that was difficult for the first few years. And then it just sort of came right around the year 2013. It kind of came to the point that uh, some changes needed to be made in Ricochet. And uh, my final remaining partner, I bought him out. I bought out his, his share of Ricochet. And I, I run the whole organization now here from Oklahoma. So, And we're still great friends. Me and Greg Cook are wonderful friends. We grew up together right here in, in Bayern, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I saw him just the other night. Now, he still lives in Tennessee. But his wife and he were both from from this area, so they come home for the holidays. So I saw him at a Christmas party just a few weeks ago, and uh, you know, still great friends. Every time I'm in Nashville, he and I try to get together for lunch. I run into Eddie Kay a lot, but he, as you may or may not know, he's the band leader for Montgomery Gentry. Mm-hmm. I didn't know so, that. Uh, yep he's he's out there in Nashville still making a living playing music, and and he's also a songwriter and a producer, and he you know he's working all sorts of different projects at one time. Uh, Junior, I just had lunch with Junior uh, about a month or two ago. He actually loaned me his fiddle. Mine was in the shop, and I had a gig that I needed. I needed to borrow a fiddle that already had some electronics in it. And I called him up and I said, "Man, I know you're playing in church every now and then, but are you a, are you using that old fiddle?" And He said, "No, nope, I'm not using it right now. If you want to." You want to borrow it? go it out of his. I still have it. Oh, right that's
0: now. great. If, if Junior's listening to this, Junior, I still have your fiddle, <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, what, I, it, the uh some of the guys that you mentioned there are involved with some of the newer country artists. Uh, Greg mm-hmm. Cook, uh, tour manager for the Swan Brothers, uh, Chase Bryant, Jeff and Junior Bryant's nephew. Um, mm-hmm. Now, sure. it, as far as the new country goes, uh, you know, obviously you, you guys are still uh, got your finger in it a little bit there. What advice would you give some of these guys who are having big hits right now and um, on the road, kind of doing the same thing you were doing in the mid '90s? What's some advice you would give them?
1: Well, I would tell these guys to always plan for the next stage in your career. It's funny you would ask me this. I, I serve; I'm the uh, I'm the uh, sort of on an advisory board in this music school that I went to in Levelland, Texas, out at South Plains College. And I'm the chairman of the advisory board for the commercial music department out there. I uh, I tell every time I get a chance to speak to young people and students, uh, I tell them always be planning ahead because the music industry is a very volatile industry. And it's usually the flavor of the month type thing. You know, you know, I remember when we had our first number one song, I thought, oh, this is never going to change. This is always going <laughs> to be the same. I'm all, I'm always going to be doing this. And, and fortunately, I'm still making a living playing music, I'm not at the same level as I was back in the 90s, but still I get to go out and play music, and and you know just we just did a national television appearance at, at performing the national anthem at the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo this past December, and so I still get to have my hand in it somewhat and still make a living doing it. But I would always I would tell people that are just starting out to always plan for the next stage of your career. If you want to be a producer, then start producing you know other people's projects. Let's start producing demos. Produce your own demos. Uh, you know, learn as much about that as you possibly can. If you want to be a full-time songwriter, study up your, the songwriters that are your favorite songwriters. Always plan for for your career, even if it's just expanding your existing career. You know, I I never did really do a whole lot of songwriting. I've done some, but I didn't. It never really was something that I was uh, motivated to do a lot until I got a publishing deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you get a when that. I've, National Recording Contract in in Nashville, they, uh, a lot of publishers come seeking you out. And so I signed a publishing deal without ever, ever having really been a what I would call a prolific songwriter. But I learned a lot about it during that time because I was lucky enough to be able to write with some of the greatest writers in Nashville. So you're Skip Ewing's and Bob DePiero and Ron Harbin and Marty Dotson and Kim Williams and some of the great songwriters out there. I learned a lot just by sitting in the room with those guys. And uh, my contribution to some of the songs that we wrote might have just been a guitar chord pattern, you know, or maybe a melody line here and there. It was seldom lyrical, but it was. I, I finally got good enough at it and wrote with the right people. I wrote a song with Neil Thrasher and Michael Delaney that was our title, cut of our third album. So I, I finally did, you know, I, I I set through two albums without ever even getting <laughs> cut as a songwriter, and then finally got the title cut for the third album. But you know, I just continue to learn. Don't don't ever stop learning.
0: Is that some of the advice some of the older guys? I know you opened up for uh, Doug Stone, Merle Haggard, Charlie Daniels' band, some people like that when you first got started. Is that the same advice that they gave you, and or was it different, and did you follow it?
1: Yeah, especially Mr. Daniels. Charlie Daniels is a great man to just sit and talk to. I never really got the opportunity to sit and talk with Merle Haggard, even though I would have loved to have done that. He was already well, as they we, you know, as they say, aged he was yeah. he was pretty long in years by the time we got to work with him, and he pretty much kept to himself. He wasn't wasn't the kind of guy to hang out during sound check. Mm-hmm. He did do his own sound check, but he would he would leave and go straight to his bus afterwards. Uh, so, I, you know, but certain certain people like that, like Charlie Daniels and Marty Stewart, was great. He was great to hang out with. He would uh, when we were on tour on the Double Trouble tour with him and him and uh, uh, Travis Tritt. Marty would come hang out in catering and just sit around and tell stories about when he played with Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs. Oh, wow. Johnny Cash. And he would just it was just great to just sit and chat with him. And so those guys, you know, it's, they, they were always full of great advice, and, and we, tried to, we tried to heed their advice and just always plan for the next level, you know, mm-hmm. next stage in our career.
0: This is Heath Wright, lead singer for the band Ricochet. Uh, thanks for being on. Hello from the 90s. It's uh, good to reminisce about some good country music from that era.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a, you're right. It's great to sit back and reminisce. Hope to hope to see you in person again someday.